There was a time when we defined fine dining with at least to a white tablecloth, waiters with gloves, ties, and suit. Uh, you have 20 different knife, fork, spoon for each course, different style. I think that era is is gone because other generation coming in and the future coming in are not into that kind of fine dining per se, where you have the full degustation menu with courses and full setup for four hours. So that was the fine dining when I started cooking 35 years ago. For me, fine dining now is about the cuisine more than just the experience of everything put together, right? It is changing. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Hello, food lovers, and welcome back to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. And my guest today is Chef Vikram Garg, who I recently met in Honolulu. Preparing my trip to Hawaii, I reached out to Chef Roy Yamaguchi, who was a guest on this podcast, and asked him, whom I should connect with while in Honolulu. Chef Yamaguchi mentioned I needed to get together with Chef Vikram Guard from Umi. From the vibrant streets of India to the serene beaches of Honolulu, Chef Vikram Guard has embarked on a journey that celebrates the essence of the ocean at his renowned restaurant Umi. Dive with us into a deep conversation about flavors, techniques, and the inspiration behind his mesmerizing dishes. Without further ado, let's welcome the man himself, Chef Vikram Garg. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. I'm excited to, to have you on the show. Yeah, it was not too long ago that we met when I was in, you know, in Honolulu a few weeks back. I was glad to be on, you know, a few days vacation, you know, over there. And Roy Yamaguchi was kind enough to say, hey, you know what? You're in Honolulu. You absolutely need to meet Chef Vikram Garada and, you know, eat at Umi. So I'm glad I did. And then we connected. Thank you so much. So obviously you are originally from India. So what food and smell reminds you of your childhood? I grew up on a small island in India. I mean, the, the really something which excited me was butter ghee butter of my childhood milk it was the key in our house growing up so that definitely reminds me of my childhood and then freshly made bread in the morning i mean of course yeah the indian bread we make you know it's it's different than the baked bread and in which part of india again are you from i'm originally from the north of india in punjab but i grew up in andaman nicobar islands which is in the bay of bengal it's similar to how hawaii is to us in the same context, Andaman Island is to India. And and so how did you first discover your passion for cooking? And, and what led you to be to become a chef? 
You know, I mean, I always enjoyed cooking with my mom in her kitchen. I never thought that I want to be a chef, but it was more of a passion to eat. And at the same time, my mom was a working mom, so help her in the kitchen. And I enjoyed doing it. And whenever I got an opportunity, I'll make something for myself if I came back from school early. And, and, and I had the curiosity to try different cuisines, you know. I mean, growing up in India, you, you try, tend to eat ethnic food all the time, but I was a little bit more adventurous on trying different cuisines. And when it came to the time to go to hotel school, I did hotel school. And it was more for, not for the culinary, but for the hotels. And there, one of the topics is culinary. And when I went, started going to culinary classes, I really enjoyed it. And I said, you know, this is, this is something I like to do. And that's where my passion or my, my, you know, wanting of chef began. Okay. And so you're starting your chef experience where, while you were still in India, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. So for how long did you stay and, and work, you know, as a, as a cook, I guess, at the beginning, you know, in India before? Before I became a chef, uh, I started cooking in 1990. Okay. I mean, that's how I graduated from the school and then went in as a commie. I mean, I, I grew up in the European system of the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So I was like a commie three and then commie two, commie one. So I grew up the ranks from there. So that was in 1990. But from 1987, when I was in the hotel school, I used to go do apprentice in the, in, in the hotels in the evening after college. Uh, so technically speaking, professionally, 1987, I started. So what happened after that? Because you move obviously, you know, out of India and you had some uh, culinary experiences in other parts of the world before establishing yourself in uh, the island of Hawaii, correct? Yes. So I went to the hotel school in Chennai in India. And then uh, after that, I worked for a hotel chain, as I said, as a commie. And then there's a program from Oberoi School of Management where they have the specialized culinary program. I went to culinary school there and I studied there for two years. I did the full culinary program and then I worked for Oberoi Hotels in India. After that, I got an opportunity to open a hotel with a few restaurants as a sous chef after four years of working in Dubai. So I worked in Dubai, opened the property. I worked there for a few years and then I got an opportunity with Rosewood in the Caribbean, a US-based company. And I went there to work as a sous chef. Then I worked, became executive sous chef. I worked in many of the properties. Then after about 10 years of working there, I decided to move back to India to start a family. And there I got position of a chef de cuisine slash executive sous chef in a big hotel. It was an opening of a hotel. I worked there. And after I started the family, I had opportunity to work in U.S. I came to U.S., opened a restaurant in Washington, D.C., uh, my own restaurant, and I was there running it for four years. And after that, I, I, I got an opportunity to work at, at Halikulani Hotel in Hawaii as an executive chef. They called me. I came and joined them in 2008. And from 2008 to 2016, I worked with them as the executive chef running multiple restaurants, in charge of multiple restaurants. And after that, I decided to venture off my own and started my own restaurant and hotel company, which right now, which you tried, the latest one is the Umi by Vikram Garg. And in, in between, I traveled quite a bit around the globe. I mean, I spent some time in Marseille cooking as guest chef at Le, Le Puzet, two Michelin star restaurant, you know, in those days. 
So it, it's, it's, you know, cooking is my passion. I love to eat, travel. And after the kids were born and, you know, we decided to be stable in one place. And the last 15 years, I'm in Hawaii. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's not a bad place. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's a big part of your experience, which is linked to, you know, being a restaurant in a hotel. Do you see big differences of managing a restaurant part of a hotel and versus like an independent restaurant? I think the, the biggest, the biggest difference is like I did, I did the corporate world for years. Like you said, no, I'm, I've come through a classical system of becoming a chef, right? And I always say that you you work your way up because chef is a thing. You cannot just look at the internet and become a chef. You have really? To go through the I thought you process. can do that now. And now, yeah, nowadays anything is possible. <laughs> uh, and but but then you don't have the depth, you know. Yeah, I mean, you don't have the depth, you know. It, it's you know, experience. The word experience means time. I mm-hmm. mean, if you can't get experienced in one year, experience ten year experience is a lot of difference, you know. Do you have you have sorry a little discretion here, but you. You have the same problem on mainland, like to teach that to the newer generation of cooks and chefs that it takes time. Absolutely. Ab- yeah. I mean, because the fundamentals are not there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, you have to learn how to do ABCD in, in, in culinary, whatever cuisine you're cooking, they are fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, you can learn a recipe, but it's like, you know, learning a recipe and cooking and understanding the chemistry and the science of the food is two different things. Okay. When you come up through the ranks, when you work in the hotels, when you go through the proper hierarchy, you understand each step what it takes. You know, you can make a dish. I always tell my chefs, you want to become a chef, you can make a dish, but writing a menu is different because you've got to balance out everything. There's a composition, there's everything, you know. I mean, singing a song and writing the lyrics are two different things, you know. I would say. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So yeah. sorry, I interrupted you. So yeah, back to the questions of the difference between. Uh, restaurant in a hotel and independent restaurant? So I think restaurant in a hotel is very driven by the whole operations. It's got a little bit more hierarchy system where there's too many deciding factors. And whereas when you're in an uh, independent hotel, independent restaurant, you're the chef, you, your decisions are pretty quick, you know? I mean, I would say in a way, quote unquote, red tape, you don't have red tape. That's yep, the biggest yep. difference mm-hmm. in that. And then the focus on an independent restaurant is very, very pointed towards the focus of the food and the and the guest, whereas in a hotel, it's more about the full experience of the room, hotel, and can get diluted with different people and different requirements. Okay. Say. Okay. Yeah. But nowadays, I think, I mean, this is what I'm talking about, but nowadays, I think it's changing. I think hotels are also competing with independent restaurants. I think independent restaurants are more passion driven, whereas the hotel restaurants are more, more of a requirement driven. Yeah. You obviously went in different part of the world, and so you you probably receive a lot of influences while cooking. So, what are like the key influences behind your unique culinary style? I always say that you know when you travel, and especially when you live somewhere for a short, for a couple of years, even if a year, you tend to pick up the by default. You tend to pick up the 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 flavors, the feel, the culture, right? I mean, I mean, like I when I moved to US, I mean, I didn't have the feel for hot dogs or pizzas. Now I do get craving to eat once in a while, you know. You know that was I mean that was not common. So you you develop that taste, you develop the palate, 
you start liking something and you seen the, you start seeing the common things maybe called differently right so so what i've noticed during my subconsciously during my travel around the globe while cooking and living the biggest thing is i tend to pick up flavors which which are unique which are which are interesting and subconsciously i use it in my cooking right i mean that's when i lived in in dubai for example i lived there i i learned the mediterranean cuisine because i was very intrigued by the because the the vegetarian option on there like a lot of their food is vegetarian except the koftas and the kebabs and the flavors the simplicity when i'm in france like in marseille the bouillabaisse so you will always see some kind of a fish soup similar to bouillabaisse in that lines on my menu uh, you'll see a little bit of a smoked eggplant like a baba ganoush in that lines on my menu right um, so while traveling and spent time in the caribbean caribbean was a lot of this the caribbean spices jerk spices and all not so much spicy but use of uh, plantain use of tapioca so all of that you will start seeing so unknowingly subconsciously it comes into my food when i when i write a menu okay so talking about umi now so what's for you how would you describe sorry the the like the culinary you know philosophy behind you know the restaurant umi uh the 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 umi i mean <clears throat> the name of umi is basically ocean it means ocean in japanese and one of the part which i didn't cover is after i came to hawaii i learned a lot about the asian cuisine specifically in japanese cuisine and i spent a lot of time in japan traveling trying to understand what the food is and i was very intrigued by it because of the simplicity of the cuisine and focus on the quality right so last 14 years before i opened umi i spent time you know traveling to japan understanding rice understanding seafood understanding their methods of cooking trying to compare it with other cuisines which i have learned or experienced in my life and when this opportunity came i said i want to open a restaurant which is seafood centric which is focused on seafood because we are in, in hawaii so the philosophy of umi umi means ocean umi means mother seafood it's a seafood based restaurant and whatever we can get fresh whatever we can seasonal we use that in cooking okay is are yeah. like all the seafood that you feature on the menu comes from like hawaii region or it could be beyond that it's beyond that to first first we go local uh, first we try and get everything local and and once we cross the limits in the local seafood i mean even though we're in hawaii it's not like there's abundance of seafood out here there's only limited seafood what we get i mean limited variety and then once we are once we go out of that then we we go outside to get the best possible <laughs> So if this is the celebration of the ocean and this is you know all about the the produce from the ocean so how do you balance like the the cultural influences that you know that you have experienced through all your travels and stays in different part of the world with you know with the the role of shaping like you know like the menu at at Umi the cooking techniques because i was very classically trained in french kitchens for 15 years of my starting of my life and so my tech cooking techniques are very french driven right it's they are very french driven by default because that's what that's what my learning is right 
So the methods of cooking, which are the same everywhere in the world, but they're more like sauce-based. Yeah. So sauce is the important part of a, of a dish. So it's broken down in a very, very classical French way. There's a, there's a sauce, there's a vegetable, there's a starch, and there is a protein and to, the main meat. And sorry, keep your thoughts, but to interrupt you here, because you're talking about this, there's like one dish that, you know, you generously like, you know, brought to, to our table that really struck me because I never experienced it before like this. That was, in fact, presented as an escargot with all the, you know, the sauces of uh, the elements of, you know, the escargot with the butter and the parsley and the garlic and so on. But instead of escargot, it was prawns. And I thought that was, that was amazing. In fact, that's, that's a dish I never experienced before. And that's for me a very good illustration of what you are saying at the moment. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, as you experienced it, that's, that's exactly what, what the focus is. So I think for my philosophy on the food is, uh, one should not, uh, food is something which we associate with our memories, right? It's, it's something when you eat it, like you said, escargot, because you 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 have experienced escargot, it connects with you immediately. It brings a comfort level to you. Even if you're eating in a fine dining, you know, I mean, the top restaurant in the world or a casual bistro or a fast food. So it, it always connects with your brains, you know, subconsciously. And that's one of the things which we always keep in mind when I'm doing it. So as I explained, my fundamentals are, are, are base is very French in terms of the, st- the fundamentals out there. Then I go use global influence. One of the dish, for example, was, I don't know if you tried that. I, rem- I think you did. The scallop. Yes. Uh, carpaccio. Absolutely. Scallop and cu- cucumber carpaccio. I'll give you an example of that dish. Technically, if you look at it, it's a carpaccio of scallop and cucumber, Right. So that becomes a very Italian or it could be very French, a very thin emancier of, of scallop, right? And now the same thing which I pickled in, in Japanese pickling vinegar, which becomes a namasu. So it's, it, it would, it could be pickled a French way, it could be pickled a Japanese way. And then the, the, the fume, which is on there, or which is now we call it dashi, is made with scallop, dried scallops and, and mirpois like the French mirepoix inside. So it's a, it's a perfect marriage of, of that different cuisines or different culture, but done in a very refined way, you know? And then that, that broth has got mushroom trimmings. So when you eat that dish and inside we put wasabi tobiko for a little, 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 little crunch and flavor. And when you drink that, it's basically having a cold fumé, like a cold broth with carpaccio of scallop and that. So it has got a very strong Japanese influence, but the techniques are very, very European. Okay. I just wanted to add that my daughter that was with me at, you know, at the table, in fact, do not really usually like scallop too much. And plus they are a little bit raw, you know, and obviously here and she, she loved it. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's, I always take a common thread when I look at food, you know, and because you travel around, I've traveled a little bit around the globe. So I found the commonality. It's like when you go to Japan, they call it tempura. It's a little different batter. You go to Europe, France, they call it beignet. You go to India, call it pakoda. If you really look at all of them, they're all batter-based, crispy, fried, with a little twist of flavor. So that's the common thread which I pick up on the cuisines and try and create a dish which is 
which can be connected to the memories, you know. Okay. I like, you know, to talk with chefs uh, on the podcast about the, the creative process and, you know, thinking about what's the first step, you know, when you are creating a new dish. So I'm guessing for you listening to you, it's obviously the produce, you know, the celebration of the ocean. And then after that, you are applying, you know, those international, you know, global influences that you just described and gave some, some example. Do you have, you know, other sources of inspiration? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I read a lot. Okay, I read a lot. I spend a lot of time looking at different restaurants in the world, studying what's happening in the world. And number one, I go to farmer's market and and the local market very often, at least two, three times a week. That's my number first inspiration of when I see something. I'm a, I'm a person who sees stuff and then it comes to my mind. I don't sit down in the, in, in a, in a, on a table or in a room and write write the menu and then go to the market. I go to the market and then write the menu. That's that's one. And and over the years now, especially in Hawaii, I know what comes in season, what we can get produce wise or vegetables wise or fruit wise. I know that. Whereas in seafood, like for example, fish, I go to fish auction two or three times a month. Or they send me a list on a regular basis. This is what is coming in season. This is what is here. This is what we can get. Based on that, I, I that's my ins- initial inspiration of the the vegetables, the ingredients, let's put it this way. Then it comes to putting dishes together. And that's, um, you know, it comes through my experience through travel. I look at the demographic, what my guest is, what do, what do they want? Because, you know, I cannot be uh, making a dish, which I know that it's not going to be very popular with most of my demographic or the guests coming in. And then comes okay, how do we make it interesting and something different? One of the positives or negatives you can say about me is I don't like to make dishes on my menu, which you can find everywhere else. My thing is it has to be unique, but it cannot be totally out of the spectrum that you don't understand the food. So unique is number one. I mean, not necessarily so unique that it's too too far out, right? It has to have the balance because you're eating. It has to be health because first first of all, we eat for our health, right? It's got to be unique. It has to be healthy for a person to eat. And then it has to connect with memories. For example, the escargot dish, it was made with shrimp, but it connected you with your memory, right? So when you eat the scallop, it'll connect you with some memories. So there's a connection of each dish with something or the other. It is not just created because it should be there. So you're talking about like the the target audience and the demographic, and I'm I'm guessing that even I mean you are in Honolulu and there's a lot of international tourists. So I'm guessing like in the hotel, this is probably most of your guests, correct? That are I don't know what's the percentage and you know of tourists versus locals. Do you, do you know that? Yeah. So uh, we are very new. We are already about five months old. Uh, so we are about sixty five percent local. Sixty five percent local. Okay. Local. Okay. And right now, and uh, the, we do get in tourists also. I mean, for dinner because a lot of the local guests who have, who have known me for over the past fifteen years come and support us. That's one. So, so but the demographic is changing as we speak. So I think we will be about forty percent local, sixty percent tourist based on the location, and once we stabilize. 
And when we say tourist, again, we break it down into uh, a demographic from Asia. So we have a heavy influence of Asia, heavy influence of U.S. mainland and Europe, percentage-wise. So when we when we start to look at from the perspective, I would say of the 60%, I would say 25% U.S., uh, you know, about, no, I would say 30, 35% U.S., 30, 40% Asia, mm-hmm. and rest, Europe, the rest of the world. Okay. Right? Okay. So when we look at the demographic and we look at that 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 culture, so we we keep in mind what will please them, and mm-hmm. not to forget the forty percent of our guests who are local, mm-hmm. who are from Hawaii, and they have a very discerning palate. You know, they have grown up with a very strong mix of East and West. They've got a very strong Japanese and uh, uh, a Filipino and uh, a Korean influence in their in their dining habits okay. or in their palate. So we keep all of that in mind. How do we balance it so it pleases most of the palate, not losing the DNA of the of the dish? So you know you were talking about the dish of the you know the oysters with the cold smoke, but as well you know you talked about the scallops in detail. There's a third dish that you know that you brought me to taste. That was the kampachi with the hamaika, the fennel, and the shishito vinaigrette. Can you talk a little bit the inspiration behind this one? What was the thought uh, in my mind when I created the dish was com- was a ceviche. Mm-hmm. First thing that came to my mind was ceviche. You know, ceviche is something refreshing. We're in Hawaii, warm, and and it's got good lot of flavors. And what I hamachi is from Hawaii. It's from Big Island. It's where we get get from there. The kona kampachi. I mean. A bigger kampachi is a hamachi. So when we get there, when I eat that, when I touch that fish, it's one of the perfect fish for making a tatar, like a tatar or a ceviche. So when I ate that, the amount of fat it has got, it needs a little sweetness and a little acid to think it. So hikama, I personally love hikama because it's got a very nice flavor and it's not as sweet as the Asian pear or other vegetables on that same line of fruits. So we decided to make a a little uh, pickle, the jicama and fennel, and fennel and uh, and fish is a very good combination, as you know, in the European cuisine. So pickled fennel, pickled jicama, we candy the lemon skin, and we just mix it up with the vinaigrette. And the vinaigrette is made normally a classic vinaigrette. I take it instead of using champagne vinegar, I use rice wine vinegar, and uh, instead of using cayenne, I smoke the shishito pepper and put it inside. To give that 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 the scent, you know, and uh, you know, instead of olive oil, I have used grapeseed oil in there, so balance it out. So that's what the dish is, and it's got lemon aioli and a little tuile on top, which is made with the squid ink. Yeah, that 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 was again an amazing dish that was really balanced, and because the you know hamachi um, is obviously very refined in terms of texture, but as well in terms of taste. And nothing else was overpowering, but it was balanced. There was some acidity and there were the freshness of the haikama and yeah, and a little touch of spiciness with, you know, the, the shito peppers. So that, that was an amazing experience. Well, thank you. So, so to me, when, when we cooking, you know, and with my team, when we do, we make menu or any of the dish, I always tell them that you have to hit all the senses, mm-hmm. right? I mean, taste, texture, temperature, number one is very important. 
what temperature we are sending it, what the taste is, what the texture is. And it has to have crunch, it has to have this. So we balance it out in a way so that you, you, you experience with all your senses, from your nose to your eyes to your, you know, the acid, the salt. You know, a lot of the times you see a dish is very high sodium or very high, very sweet. You know, that's, that's our philosophy in most of the dishes, what we make or all of the dishes. So there's, there's another dish that I like because of the way you approach like the fusion of different ingredients from different parts of the world. He spoke, that dish spoke to my, obviously my French DNA because it contained foie gras. And I never had the foie gras, you know, in that form. And so it's the amazing foie gras gyoza with a, a mirin cardamom jus that you have. So can, can you talk to us about this approach that you have taken of, of, this fusion between those diverse ingredients that is making now like really part of this in integrity of this amazing flavor. So, yeah, I mean, foie gras, uh, as you know, it's the delicacy, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the Europe and uh, people, people really enjoy it. And I, I personally have cooked foie gras in different ways and farms and tried to eat it. And as I said, I'm very new to the, uh, Japanese uh, cuisine in the last 15 years, I've learned new means 15 years out of 35 years of my cooking. And I enjoyed eating gyoza in different forms. They have different fillings inside. And I, I thought that the pastry is very delicate. It reminded me of, of pajaskis, which I've learned to cook in the past, or the gnocchi, stuffed gnocchis before, which are a little bit more heavy, right? Whereas gyoza is very light. I said, it needs something delicate inside. And one day I was playing around. I said, why don't we just put foie gras inside and see how it comes out? We make a nice uh, show and then break it down with the confit inside. And it's actually a very classical French way of preparing it. It's it's make basically a duck riette, if I would break it down, because you understand that piece, with foie gras mixed together, stuffed inside a little thin pastry, folded, steamed, and pan-fried. I mean, that's exactly what it is. And, and for me, the inspiration was it's the, the fat of the foie gras, the, 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 the richness of the foie gras stays inside the capsule. And when you eat that, it's good. And classically in a French cuisine, you will pair it with sautern or a sweet Riesling, right? So mirin is sweet, the sweet wine from Japan. So we chose mirin and then we make a, uh, proper jus with the duck bones and we add the mirin instead of sautern or any of the sweet wine and then put a little bit of a mace and cardamom inside for the little essence and serve it with that. So uh, in, in, in a, it, there are three elements to it, right? If you go to um, a French restaurant, you get the foie gras with sautern, something sweet. Even if it's a hot foie gras, it's pan-seared, it's boilé, you have a little gastrique with it or something. If you go to Asia, you get gyoza with a dipping sauce, like a soy or some other dipping sauce along with it. So it's a marriage of those two into creating that flavors. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, that listening to you, you, you can really tell like all those multiple influences that, you know, that went through your, your life and, you know, that you express into those dishes and, and for the people that are, you know, listening to the show and if they are planning 
you know, traveling to Hawaii and, and obviously they will probably land in Honolulu. You absolutely need to, you know, to go to Umi and, and taste the, the cuisine. You know, that's, that's really something important to do. So there's the, the last dish I, I want you to, to talk about is the one that I have chosen on the main dish that was the, the King Ora salmon with the roasted Maui onion and the sesame eggplant. So. How did you come up with pairing, you know, the salmon with the roasted Maui onion and the sesame oak plant? And how do these flavors complement each other in the dish? So, number one, the salmon. It's a salmon which is which comes from New Zealand, actually. It's mm-hmm. a kingora salmon, very high fat content. You know, I mean, again, I'm going into the chemistry of the, of the food right here a little bit. Because as a chef, when I'm eating that fish, it's most of the time the sushi chefs use it because it's got so much of fat and it's got richness to it that people enjoy eating it raw. So we, 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 when we get the salmon, we gravlax, we, we cure it for two days in, in gravlax method and we very slowly cook it, right? And the, when you cook that salmon, the amount of natural fat which comes out of that, it needs something little sweet. It needs something with a little punch. And Maui onions is a perfect combination, we thought, because that's got a little bit of um, punch to it, a little bit of sharpness to it, and it's also sweet. So we decided to roast the Maui onions. It's, it's cooked in a very classical French way. You take the onion, you put little salt, little herbs inside the oven, and you roast the whole onion. That's what we do, right? Cook, cook it. And then it's glazed with little kabayaki sauce, which has got a little sweetness to it, placed on top. And and when you're eating all of this, you've got fat, you've got smoke, you've got a little sharpness of onion and sweetness. You need uh, not, There's no smoke in there, so we, I thought a little smokiness would be good. And there comes to my mind the baba ganoush from, from the Middle East, if you think about it. So I've touched, uh, you know, the, the salmon cooking technique is very French, the gravlax salmon. The onion is cook, very French, but the onion is local. But the smokiness comes from... Uh, I mean, you can call it eggplant caviar if you're in France, you know. And if you're in uh, Middle East, because I spent time in Dubai, it's baba ganoush. And baba ganoush is nothing but eggplant with, with tahini, which is sesame. That's exactly what it is on it. So that smokiness and that, 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 that nuttiness of the tahini cuts through the fat and the thing on there. And at the bottom, if you see the sauce, was it was a blanc with the tahini inside. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And and then on top of the roasted Maui onion, you are putting some uh, salmon. Ikura. Yeah, the ikura, yeah. yeah. And oh. which add a little bit of saltiness as well. And, you know, when you bite into it, so. The, the crunch and then there's yeah. some green onions on there mm-hmm. and the very fine chiffonade of green onions. And which is the, now the garnish is also very important to me, right? When you put, I mean, I don't just want to put garnish on any dish because it can, People think it looks pretty, but it's not for pretty, it's for flavor. And that that gives you that greenness to it. Yeah. And when you have a glass of wine, if you choose a nice Chablis with it, or a, even a Burgundy, it, it'll complement, it'll give that, that bitterness or grassiness to the dish. Let's shift our focus on one of my next question here, because uh, your restaurant is obviously fine dining, so... How how do you see the the future of of fine dining evolving, especially in the place like you know Honolulu? I think fine dining 
I, I define fine dining in a very unorthodox way, right? For me, fine dining in today's world is, there was a time when we defined fine dining with a piece to a white tablecloth, waiters with gloves or ties and suit. And, you know, uh, you have 20 different knife, fork, spoon for each course, different style. You get a fish fork. And sometimes, you know, I think that era is is gone very far now because other generation coming in and the future coming in are not into that kind of fine dining per se, where you have the full degustation menu with courses and full setup for four hours. So that was the fine dining when I started cooking 35 years ago. That's That's to me fine dining was. Nowadays, to me, after working in, in, you know, Michelin restaurants and five-star restaurants and everything else, for me, fine dining now is about the cuisine more than just the experience of everything put together, right? It is changing. Like a lot of the restaurants are going away from tablecloth. It's still fine dining. Like we don't have tablecloths but we still consider it fine dining. I think fine dining is the refinement of food on a plate, how you eat it. So for us in our restaurant, for example, we do have guests who will come in and we'll have one salad, one salmon or one, one entree, or one entree, one main course and a glass of wine in go. And their bill is maybe $60, $70. And there are guests who will eat caviar, who will eat fuaga gyoza, who will use, you know, eat a whole bronzino if we have that on the menu at dessert. They'll do seven course. They will do a bottle of wine or the wine pairing. They will have an aperitif. Then they will have a, a glass of cognac from the digestive cart. And they end up spending seven $800. So that disparity of wine dining is, is very subjective now, I think. I think people are looking for experience where they can be they can have the, the 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 variety in there, and I think that's what we're focusing on. That you don't have to come and break your bank. You know, the restaurants where you go, you know that if you go there, you have to spend four five hundred dollars. That's not what who we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in the future, I think that's the future. Everywhere, even you know, I I travel a lot to Japan, and there are single cuisine restaurants. I think everybody's getting a little bit more relaxed about those serious. Uh, how do I say culture of fine dining? So there's one last question before we switch into the rapid fire, um, because I have to ask it, obviously, you know, when I met you and then obviously based on your name and the fact that you're originally from India, I'm guessing there's a lot of people that are expecting to have Indian influences, you know, and on your menu. So you have, I think that you have taken like a, a different approach, correct? So you have a specific, you know, focus menu on, you know, on curry. On you know, in, can you talk to us a little bit about this? Yeah. So on my menu, of course, you know, it's but natural human being when they say, "Oh, Vikram, yep. where is he from? India? Oh, it must be Indian restaurant." <laughs> Very first question. Yep. By default, right? Doesn't matter. Yep. Uh, I would do the same thing if I hear a French name or Italian name, right? <laughs> uh, and so we should get good Indian food, uh, which unfortunately is not what the whole idea of the restaurant is. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you a small story. During COVID, I had another restaurant called TBD, which is shut down now. I opened this one. And when the COVID hit, we had to, I mean, I had a very big team and we had to shut down overnight. And but we could uh, do to go. 
Now, when you go to go restaurant, you have food ma- making and you have limited staff and limited restri- all restrictions in the country. So we wanted to be creative because guests are sitting at home. They don't want to eat the same food every day. And my cuisine is not something which you can pack and take it home as, as you've experienced, right? It has to be enjoyed in the restaurant. So we created a comfort menu. When we created a comfort menu, we did all, you know, what, what would people like to eat? You know, steaks, mac and cheese, fries. We created a very nice menu. At the same time, I created a ghost kitchen with the Indian food. I said, let's try it. So it became so popular during COVID. We were shut down for almost four months, the restaurant. And every day we would get a call. What's on the what's on the Indian menu dish? So it was became so popular, people were enjoying it. And when once we opened back the restaurant, the same guests kept calling. We want to come. Where can we get the, those dish, Indian dishes you used to cook? I said, well, that was only during COVID. It was a, it was a separate kitchen we created to generate revenue. He said, but that was so good. You should open an Indian restaurant. <laughs> I said, that's that's a tough one. And because of our local clientele, we have a very big local base, and they want to enjoy curry. And even the Asian guests really like curry, especially the Japanese. And due to the guest demand, I always say, you have to give the guests what they want. You don't have to bend the concept. So I created a little menu. It's called the curry dinner or a curry du jour menu. So guests can come, and we create a seafood curry, a vegetarian curry, and we put a chicken because chicken curry was very popular during my time. And these recipes are from my home, growing up eating. So they are very classic recipes. And they're served in a very modern way because the rice we serve with it, that is koshi curry rice, not basmati. Because I always felt that that rice suits better. It soaks in the, the sauce better. And then the hot sauce, the way we, the, the way we serve it is very different. And... That's why it made a place on my menu, and which is very popular. Actually, uh, a lot of our locals come to eat that. Very good. So let me switch to the rapid-fire question now, if you don't mind. So you and I are going on a tasting tour in Honolulu. So obviously, beside Umi that you know we will have done first, but what are like the other five spots that you will take me to? Five spots where I will take you to. Okay. I'll take you to Sushi Onodera for uh, sushi. Uh-huh. One of my favorites. I'll take you to a Chinese restaurant for QN for their lobster and salt and pepper pork chops. Uh-huh. I'll take you to uh, a fur store, which is a fur one for the for the local fur. Okay. Yeah. It's an absolutely stunning what, what's, fur. What's the name of it, you said? Fur one. Okay. Fur one. Okay. Fur one. Absolutely stunning fur out there. Mm-hmm. Then for the for the real nostalgic feeling of Hawaii, I'll take you to Side Street Inn, mm-hmm. which is which is a very old local style food. I mean, everything is in quantity out there, but you experience what how I mean. You will ninety uh, percent of the guests you'll find is locals out there. Okay, and then taste of Hawaii. I'll take you to Helena's Kitchen. Okay. Very so these are the these are the I'm giving you a whole experience of Asia out here because of the Asian thing, and uh-huh. that's the place where I go to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other places, you know, when I want to go find dining, I'll, I'll probably fly to LA or New York or okay. <laughs> yeah. So, what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Well, that's a very very difficult question. 
<laughs> guilty pleasure food. I don't want to sound crazy, but you know, rich, rich pate on a tatine. Rich pate you know, on a tatine. On a tatine. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, if I got a chicken liver pate or a foie gras terrine on a nice crispy tatine, okay. I would say, you know, uh, <laughs> that's my, that would be a good fun for me to eat. Okay. Uh, guilty pleasure food. Okay. And then uh, in season, one of my favorites is just pasta with butter and white truffles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I follow you on that one. And the, the, yeah. the other one too. I mean, the, the foie gras tartine or... Pate, yes, I love that too. Three cookbooks that inspire you the most in your career? White Heat. The number one is White Heat. Okay. White Heat is, that's the name of the chef. He's from London. Okay. Actually, it's it's in my my library right now. Marco Pierre White. Ah, Marco Pierre White, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Marco Pierre White. He, he... It, it was the first cookbook I got when I was when I was twenty when I was seven eighteen. It was given to me by a chef, and I really like this philosophy because that's that's one of my favorite cookbooks. The reason why it's my favorite cookbook is because I think more than the recipe, it's the philosophy. Okay. Second is on on science of food and cooking. Mm-hmm. It's called the lore of food and cooking. Okay. Right. And it's it's no more it's not much of a cookbook, but it's more of a a, a fundamental book for the Te- for the chefs. Yeah, more techniques. Yeah. Okay, more techniques and more science because I think before before we turn cooking into an art, it's a lot of science. You know? uh-huh. How you handle, how you cook, temperature, time, temperature, texture, all of that is science. Uh-huh. That's by uh, Merol, uh, Harold McGee. Harold McGee. Yep. Yeah, Harold McGee. I'm sure you've seen that. Yep. The third cookbook I always have, and I've actually, I collect even the old version, is LaRue's Gastronomic. Ah, okay, yes. Right? Yep. In fact, I just got the very first edition, La Repertoire de la Cuisine. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's from 1800s. Mm-hmm. And someone got me the original, original version of it. Okay. I bought it, yeah. So... It's it's a cookbook, but I think it's more of a cook's dictionary, yeah, or yeah, a yeah. reference book. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's your biggest pet peeve in the kitchen? Laziness. Yeah. Number one, or not organized and hygiene. Okay. So my last question. So I'm talking now about what you are using. At home, so beside the classics, you know, the classic condiments, spices, sauces, you know, like people would say here in the continents, they would say like mustard, ketchup, and so on. Now, I want beyond those. What are, what I like those interesting condiments, spices, sauces, dressings that you like to have, you know, on hand at home? Oh, I am a very big collector of different vinegars. Okay. Spices, vinegars. And and wherever I travel, I bring back. In fact, after my travel to a specific country or a specific place, when I come back, yeah, for the next two weeks, my 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 kids are oh my god, I'd have to eat. <laughs> my dad is going to be working with those spices and ingredients for next two weeks. Okay, so uh, pretty much one suitcase of mine is full of food from that origin wherever I go. Okay, can you give us an so, example? Where an example? Where did you go last, and where did you bring back? So I just 
I mean, recently I came back from India and Japan. I mean, I was in Tokyo for some time and India in some time. On the way back, I mean, I picked up so many different kinds of rehydrated fruits and different kinds of noodles and 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 uh, seaweed uh-huh. from there. So I'm experimenting with that and having fun using that in my cooking. Okay, you know, of doing that. And I mean, I, I think if I have to say. What what I really would like to collect and keep, I mean, I'm looking, actually, I'm sitting in my home kitchen area. I'm looking around. You know, I discovered this vinegar from Canada. It's called eight. Uh, it's at the, it's at eight degrees, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a cold vinegar. So all their vinegars. So I think more of the condiments like vinegars and little spices. Okay. I've got a friend coming from Morocco and they're, they'll be bringing a lot of the Moroccan spices. Yes. I'll be having fun eating tagine for the next few weeks. And with a bit of Harry, <laughs> a little bit of Harry sound it. Yes. Yeah. yeah very good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, chef. I don't have, I don't have ketchup, ketchup in my, in my refrigerator. Okay. My wife has to call me that, Hey, while coming back, can you pick up some ketchup for me? <laughs> <laughs> Chef, thank you very much. So first, thank you for, you know, all the fantastic dishes that, uh, you know, you brought to the, our table when my daughter and I were at Umi at your restaurant. It was a great, uh, you know, introduction for me to your cooking. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And then thank you for your time, you know, for being on the podcast. Thank you for, you know, for willing to be on it. Thank you, Manuel. Thank you for coming and supporting us. And I'm glad that we met. And thanks to Roy that he yeah. recommended and that made you come to Umi by Vikram Garg. I mean, there are a couple of Umis. An Umi name is common. So we are more known as Umi by Vikram Garg. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So really a pre- uh, pleasure meeting you. And especially it's it's fun to meet someone who understands food, enjoys food. And, and like you explained today that you really dissected each dish. Yeah the flavors and then it's coming back today i mean that's that's that makes me happy okay very good thank you (laughs) well there you have it folks and culinary voyage with chef vikram garg exploring the depths of flavor and the artistry that goes into each dish at umi from the memories of his indian childhood to the waves of honolulu that inspire his seafood-centric masterpieces we have traveled a spectrum of taste and tales today. A massive thank you to Chef Garg for gracing Flavors Unknown with his presence and insights. For all our listeners, if you are ever in Honolulu, a visit to Umi by Vikram Garg is a must. Thank you for joining us on this adventure. Please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website, flavorsunknown.com. Remember to always keep uh, your palate curious and your heart open to the unknown flavors of the world. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.